I want you to read these with me, these scriptures. We're going to go to a lot of passages in the Bible. This is a very important passage. We are talking about the nature of God. And this is an important subject because there's nothing in your life that you could ever think about that is more important than your thoughts of God. And there's nothing that you can think about God accurately than how God has revealed himself in his word. And if you think for a moment you're going to go to the Bible and understand God, you are a deceived individual. You will never understand him in all of eternity. You're just going to know him more and more and more and more and more. And he's going to amaze you forever. That he's, he's infinite. There's no end to God. But we do know this, he never changes. So what's not ending is great things. And I want you to see as we study this that God has revealed himself as a trinity. He is, he is Father, Son, Holy Ghost. He's not three gods, he's one. And that's how he's revealed himself. And so people say, well, how can he be three gods and be one? Well, maybe you need to redo your understanding of one. Because all I know is he's three persons, but he's one God. I'm not going to let one define God. I'm going to let God define one. All right. And so the Father's God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. They're all equal. They're all sovereign. They're all almighty. They're all holy. They're all eternal. They are God and they're one, one God. And that's how he's revealed himself. Now, in Isaiah 48, verse 12, this is important. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. There's a big, there's a big thing going on today, and it's been somewhat growing, you know, and as far as discussions and debates, always been big with Jehovah Witnesses, but it's, it seems to be crossing over um, into Christians who are not just simply taking the scriptures for what it is, and that is this thought that Jesus is not God. Um, there's a belief in God, but Jesus is not God. And that's what some people are beginning to go to and beginning to believe. Well, that's Jehovah Witness. Jehovah Witness believed that Jesus was the first thing created by God. And um, I think Isaiah is very important for us to understand as we read this, who this person is. He said, hearken to me, O Jacob and Israel, my call. I am he. I am the first I also in the last. Nobody will dispute who this is in Isaiah. They know this is God. If you talk to Jehovah Witness, a Jehovah Witness will tell you that's God. Well, who is that? Who is the first and the last? Go to Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to see this in, in um, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Who is that? In Revelation chapter 1, you find that the first and the last is the one that was dead and is now alive forevermore. That is Jesus. In chapter 2 of Revelation, he tells us this. He says in verse 8, And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. That's Jesus. And if the first and the last of Isaiah is who he is to be God, and he reveals himself in Revelation as Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is God. 
And there's no way around that. Jesus is God. Now, we're, we're, we're proving that by Scripture. That's what we're proving it by. We're just taking the Scriptures and looking at it for what God says of Himself. In Revelation chapter 1, I want you to see this. He says here in verse 7, Behold, He comes with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. These are titles. These are definitions of a being, all right? A a being, a sovereign entity, a sovereign personality is being defined. And he's defining himself by titles that are descriptive of what he is. He is Alpha and Omega. And and he's going, it's important for you to follow this to know who this is that's speaking. He is Alpha and Omega. He is beginning and the ending. Well, who's Alpha and Omega? Who's beginning and the end? It's the Lord. Because saith the Lord. It's the Lord. The Lord which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And that's going to be one of our focuses tonight, the Almighty. That's where we're going to start. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. I think he wants us to get that. He keeps That's what he keeps declaring himself. I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he gives those churches. John turns to see the voice. And he's descriptive of what this person looks like. And then he comes to verse 17 again. And he says, fear not. At the end of verse 17, fear not. I am the first and the last. A descriptive title. I am he that liveth and was dead. A descriptive title title of who is speaking. It's not the Father. The Father never died. The Father never died. The Holy Ghost never died. But whoever this is has died. We know that to be Jesus. And so I'm he that was dead and he lives. He's alive forevermore. And amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And he says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are the things which shall be hereafter. And then we see here these descriptions of Jesus Christ. And it's important that you get it. And I'm just going to give them to you. This person who was dead and is alive again is indisputable as far as the Bible is concerned to refer to Jesus Christ. It refers to Jesus Christ. And the description of Jesus Christ is he is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Lord. He is the one which is, which was, which is to come. He is the Almighty. He is the same as the first and the last, as the description that is given to him. That's who he is. Now, in chapter 4 of Revelation, I want you to see part of what we looked at last week. 
And he says this in verse 8. This is the throne. And all that is seen at the throne right now is God. God Almighty. But I want you to see something. What is given to us in Revelation chapter 1, the title and the description of this personal being is used throughout the book of Revelation so you're never confused as to whom it is referring to. All right? And so he says in Revelation 4, verse 8, the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. I hope we cover the Almighty was, is, and is to come tonight. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, and the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Last week, we established the biblical fact that Jesus Christ is creator. We also established that the Father is creator, because the Bible says in Hebrews that God created all things through Jesus Christ. So the Father created it all through the Son, And Paul said in Colossians that Jesus created all things, and all things are created for him and by him, and without him is not anything made that is made. And we understand that in that creation, that the Holy Ghost moved in Genesis 1 upon the creation, producing everything that the Word was declaring. He produced that. So you see the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost in creation, and they they are the Creator. All of God is almighty. Jesus is not just almighty. The Father's almighty. The Holy Ghost is almighty. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost are the which was, the which is, and the which is to come. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are creator. It's not three different creators. It's one creator. There's not three thrones. There's one throne. And in Revelation chapter 4, there is glory and worship ascribed to this one God upon the throne. And I want you to notice something that is very important, wonderful study if you desire to get into it. That is the cry of the angels. The angels cry, holy, 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 three times for the three persons that sit upon that throne. Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, Holy is the Holy Ghost. And those angels cry that constantly to God, ascribing to all three worship. All three receive worship. And so you're going to see this, and we saw it again. We'll see it again tonight. We saw it last week. Chapter 5. I saw in the right hand. Now now there becomes a definition of that throne. I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written. Now, this is for the oneness people. I saw in him a book written within 
and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And now this is the throne. There's one sitting on the throne, and he holds a book in his hand. I would suggest, I believe, this is the Father. And then in verse 6, there's more clarity. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne. He was always there. He's in the midst of, there's one sitting, and there's one in the midst. He's in the midst of the throne, and he's in the midst of the four beasts, and he's in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now now listen, John sees the throne. That's what he sees. When he sees the throne, he sees that there's one sitting on the throne who's holding a book and nobody's found worthy to open it until the elder says there is one worthy the line of the tribe of Judah. When he's told that, he's still looking at the throne, and he begins to see now a a definitive aspect that he didn't see in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he just saw the glory of God, holy, holy, holy. But now he begins to see each holy in chapter 5. Because now he sees one sitting on the throne holding a book. He sees a lamb in the midst of the throne having been slain, who we know as Jesus. And according to Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the one that is and is to come. And Jesus is the Almighty. And we know that He's God. He's in the midst of the throne. And Jesus is separated from the one that sits on the throne because He is approaching Him and He is about to take something out of the hand Of the one that sits upon the throne. Guys, that's separateness, all right? And I can't even begin to understand that there's three separate but one being. I can't even begin to understand it. And out of the midst of the throne are the seven spirits of God. That seven speaks of perfection and it speaks of power. And the seven spirits of God is the Holy Ghost. That's the holy, holy, holy that now all come into view as John sees the throne. He sees the Father on it. He sees the Son as the Lamb in the midst of it. And he sees the Holy Ghost, the seven spirits coming forth from that throne, going into all of the earth. And so this is what he sees. He came in verse 7, the Lamb did, and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, twenty-four elders, fell down before the Lamb, and every one of them with harps, golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. They begin to, they fall before him. God said in Exodus, you don't bow to anybody but me. Well, they're bowing to the Lamb. And they begin to sing to the Lamb. 
And they begin to worship the Lamb in the very presence of the one who's sitting on the throne, who is the Father. So if, if anybody is dealing with oneness, it is, it is absolutely and intellectually and theologically impossible for you to deny the three separate beings of the one God in this chapter of chapter 5. Now, this, this goes through all of the Bible. It's not a unique instance. It's not a unique occurrence. It's in all of the Bible. For example, at the baptism of Jesus Christ, he is in the water and he is being baptized. The Bible says that the heavens opened up and the Father spoke from the heavens, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And as the Father's speaking and the Son's in the water being baptized, the Holy Ghost is descending upon him like a dove. Alright, so here's the Holy Ghost, God descending. Here's God the Father in heaven speaking. And here's God the Son in the water being baptized. And so the, the distinct separateness of the Godhead is seen throughout the Bible. But His perfect unity is also displayed in all of the Bible. And so I just think it's so important that you get this because these first few chapters in Revelation are, are so important. The reason we're using Revelation so much, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we can see who Jesus is, we will understand God in a more perfect way that we're supposed to understand Him. Now, in Revelation 1, it says that Jesus is Almighty. This is not in your notes, but you can put it there. The word Almighty in the Greek simply means all-ruling. All-ruling God as absolute and universal sovereign. That's what Almighty means. The all-ruling God, absolute and universal sovereign. The word Almighty is used descriptively of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and we know certainly that God the Father is Almighty, and we know the Holy Ghost is Almighty. Those attributes are given to them all through the Bible. But it's simple enough in Revelation chapter 1 that you've already seen it, and those are in your notes right there, Revelation 1.8. Verse 11, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 8, all describes him as being the Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty, alive forevermore. And so it's so important that you see this. Jesus Christ has declared himself. These titles speak of the living God. And I want you to see something that I think is so important. I was just thinking about this today. And, and when I was, I was just in prayer and I was just meditating upon this, what I'm talking about tonight. And I was meditating upon God. And, you know, when you, when you just think about God, it's, it's just so liberating when He's our God. And it's this God we're talking about. I don't think anybody would derive this kind of joy by thinking about Allah. All right? I, I went to a, an, an, a Muslim um, evangelist at LSU a couple of years ago with Jordan because she was required to go to it for her class. And this guy talked for an hour and a half about why Islam is good for the world. And he talked for an hour and a half. And he never mentioned Allah one time. Not once. And I know, and I said this at the end of that class, it's because he's ashamed of his God. There's nothing about Allah that he's proud of. 
And they and Islam would declare Allah to be almighty. He's a powerful, powerful God. But he's not a loving God. He's not a kind God. He's not a merciful God. He is not a predictable God. All right? And so they're ashamed of him. Didn't talk about it. If you had a Christian evangelist speaking for an hour and a half anywhere, you wouldn't be able to count the numbers of times he's going to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus is everything. And I just I was just meditating about him. And I was just thinking about Jesus Christ who lives inside of you is almighty. He is almighty. He is the all-ruling God who is the absolute universal sovereign. Well, I'll tell you, that just thrilled me today. It thrilled me to know that's who lives inside of me, who desired to take up residency in my life, because that just, I was able to say in the face of every fear, fear, you are not almighty, but he who is in me is. To say to my sin, you are not almighty. To say to my lust and my flesh, you are not almighty. The devil would have me to believe that sometimes those lusts in me, that flesh in me is stronger than I will ever be able to break free from. And I'll say this, it is stronger than me, but it's not stronger than the almighty who is inside of me. Oh, the hope that he gave me today. The hope that he gave me. And I thought, how wonderful. I mean, how wonderful. Let me ask you something. If, 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 a, if a being suddenly appeared, he's already here. But if a being suddenly appeared before our eyes, and, you, and we could all see a very, very powerful angel having six wings walking around in here, I think you would very quickly lose interest in me And you'd start having your attention upon that being. Awesome, glorious, unique, powerful. You just follow that everywhere it went. You wouldn't, you'd probably be scared, everything else. Even though you know it's an angel of God, you'd probably say, Lee, shut up. Let's hear him. Everything else, you know, that would go on with that. We'd just be in absolute amazement at that. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about heaven. And I was thinking about what could be better than heaven? I mean, heaven is, heaven is the analogy of absolute perfection, absolute uh, beauty, absolute delight. It, it, is, it is something where dreams do not even achieve to describe what is actually... That's what heaven means to practically anybody in the world. You just talk about heaven. You know, it's just a place of absolute delight and bliss and whatever it is. Every religion that has any reference to it would have that type of reference. And you think, what could be better than heaven... Jesus. Jesus is better than heaven. God is better than heaven. And I was just thinking about that today. How wonderful. I mean, you know, think about this. It's just an incredible thing. Here's John, and he is actually seeing these things. He's actually seeing streets of gold. He's actually seeing this crystal river. He's, he just described in Revelation chapter 4, he, he actually describes the elders, and he describes the beast. And he said, look, these angels have multiple faces upon them. I mean, they have eyes all around them. Some of them have six wings. Some of them are very, very powerful. All of these things. But none of that could distract him from the glory of this being who sits upon his throne. Nothing. 
I mean, he described crystal rivers, yeah. The redeemed are there. All these angelic hosts. But my God who sits on that throne, that holy, holy being, holy being, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the Lamb, the seven spirits of God. Oh, the, the majesty of it. And I want to see him. I want to be there. I, don't, I want to be there with him as my father, not as my judge. Oh, I want to look upon him and I want to see him. And that almighty God is going to bring me there. And it's just impossible to see it. There can't be more than one almighty. It's just impossible. By definition, almighty is almighty. If Revelation chapter 1 declares that Jesus Christ is the almighty, if he makes that declaration, saith the Lord, I am the almighty, then he is the almighty, and the Father's the almighty, and the Holy Ghost is the almighty, and there can't be more than one almighty, then those three beings must be one God. They must be one in separate persons. That's going to be the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. That is going to surpass heaven. I mean, you're not going to run to get a piece of fruit off of the tree of life. You're going to run to the life. The Lamb of God. That's what you're going to do. How wonderful He is. I want to touch on this. The immutability of Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Ghost. He said He is that which is, which was, and which is to come. This describes the immutability of God. He's not just talking about somebody that was in the earth and now he's in heaven and he's coming back to earth. That's not what he's describing. He's describing his eternal attribute. That's what he's describing. Nobody but God himself can declare, I am the one which was, which is, and which is to come. You weren't was. You were never, you're not, you're not eternal. I'm not eternal. There was a day I was made. There was a day I was created. Well, I want you to know something. Never in the Bible does it even come close to referring that Jesus was ever created. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. And the Bible calls it the incarnation. And the Apostle Paul said, it is a mystery a human mind will never get around. It is the mystery of godliness that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was never created. He is the was. He is the is. And He is that which is to come. And the Father's the was. And the Father's the is. And the Father is to come. And the Holy Ghost is the was. And the Holy Ghost is the is. And the Holy Ghost is the one that is to come. That just simply means there is no fluctuation in the almighty nature of the eternal God. Understand this. No fluctuation. No change. There's no diminishing and there's no adding. He's never learned anything. God cannot learn something. Because if God could learn something, then it just simply means there's something that God does not know. But there's nothing He doesn't know. He knows everything. He knows the end from the very beginning. He knew before He ever created earth, He'd have to come and die for the sins of this world. He knew it all. 
He's immutable in His holiness, meaning His holiness is unchanging. There wasn't a day that God became holy. He was always holy. He was never an infant. He was never a baby. Mary is not the mother of God. God made that woman. That woman did not make God. She was just a chosen, special, favored girl who was part of that incarnation of Jesus becoming a man. That's all. She's the son. She's the mother of the Son of God, not the mother of God. Don't ever mistake that. God had no beginning. He was never a baby. He was never a teenager. He was never an adolescent. He never went through anything. Whatever he is right now, he has always been. He's always been perfect. He's always been almighty. He's always been omniscient. He's always been omnipotent. There's nothing in his being that he ever needed. He did not need you. He did not need me. The purposes of his creation are for his glory alone. He did not make us in order for him to have something to love. For Jesus said in John 17, I want you to, I want them to know that you've loved them like you've loved me. And in eternity past, there's a God of love. He never learned how to love. He never learned how to be a father. He never learned anything. He always was that. When he exerts his power on your behalf, his power is undiminished. It has not been taxed to the least. He can come and answer the prayers of every human being on this planet in one moment, and he is not tired. He's not exhausted. He's not worn out. He can carry you for 50 years, and he's not tired for it. He's got an eternity ahead of him to carry you. Nothing in him is diminished. Nothing grows weak. Nothing grows tired. He is the same yesterday, the same today, the same tomorrow. He'll heal us today because He healed us yesterday. He'll save us today because He saved us yesterday. Nothing in God is unchanging. And when Jesus Christ became a man, then this is the only reason it could happen. He is the full disclosure of the invisible God. That's what Jesus Christ is. Hebrews chapter 1. He is the expression of the invisible God. That no man could do that but a God who became man. When Jesus walked on this earth, then you knew without a doubt what he felt about a woman caught in adultery. I do not want to kill you. That never changed in God. That God of the Old Testament never wanted to kill a murderer, never wanted to kill an adulteress, never wanted to kill a thief, never want to. For he said it, why will you die? I'd rather you repent and come to me. That was the heart of God in Jesus, and that's the heart of God in the Old Testament, and that'll be the heart of God throughout all of the ages. He never changes. You know how God feels towards babies? Because Jesus said, let them come to me. You people are so old, you're so brittle, you're so frail, you're so stoic, you're so religious, you're so holy, you ain't got time for kids. Well, I'll tell you, let them come to me. That's the heart of God. God says, bring the children to me. You know, children were just nothing but less than slaves in that day. And what he thinks about women, he esteemed them, he exalted them, he lifted them up to their rightful place. He said of them that they are as much a part of the body as a man is, and that in Christ there's neither male nor female. Jesus lifted them all up. God never changed, never changed on anything that he's ever been. That's the immutability of God. 
By that definition, he must be that. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing in him ever, ever changes. Nothing changes. Jesus is the one which was, is, and is to come, meaning he had no beginning, he'll have no end. No end. Nothing of his nature, nothing of his essence will ever change. Somebody might say, well, I don't understand that. Because how could he be in that state from eternity past and become a man? How could he do that? Well, I'll tell you this. All I know is this, that when he became a man, he never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be God. He was the same in nature and the same in essence, and the same in character, and the same in attribute as he had always been. He lived that out in complete dependence. And then I want to see this last thing tonight, or or maybe two more, but the test of holiness. As you look at this, the test of holiness. Revelation 15.4 says, Only God is holy. Well, we know that the one who sits on the throne is holy, Revelation 4 and 5, ascribe holiness to him. We also know that the Lamb is holy. For Revelation 4 and 5, ascribe holiness to the Lamb. But I want you to see some other scriptures in Acts chapter 4. Turn here and read this with me. In Acts chapter 4, I say this, that the Holy Ghost ascribes holiness to Jesus because the Holy Ghost was speaking through Peter. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 30, this is the prayer of the, of the apostles after they had suffered at the hands of the high priest. They pray in verse 27, your holy child Jesus. And then they come to verse 29, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done By the name of your holy child, Jesus. He is declared holy in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. In the the sermon that Peter is preaching, under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, he says in verse 14 to the people, You denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God's raised from the dead, Whereof we are witnesses. And he is declared to be the Holy One and the just. In Hebrews chapter 7. The Bible says here in verse 26. For such a high priest became us. Who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. When you understand the holiness that is referred to here then you must understand it in the way that it is used to describe God. In Revelation 15, only God is holy. When they cried in Revelation chapter 4, holy, 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 they are by no means referencing holiness like they may reference holiness regarding you and me. We have an imputed holiness given to us. We do not have an intrinsic holiness. We have an intrinsic wickedness. For us, holiness is, is separation. It is to be set apart. But we also have a hope of holiness. And the hope of holiness is 
a, a state of perfection. That we're going to be brought into a state of perfection. You're about to see this in just a moment in Revelation. What happens to the redeemed when they're in heaven. And it's very amazing when you see it. But we also know that holiness is something that is at work in our life. We know according to Isaiah in chapter 6 when he says, I am unholy, I am undone. He is just simply saying, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm not complete, I don't work, I don't function. Something's wrong with me. That's what he's saying in Isaiah 6 when I'm undone. And that would be unholy. And so when we'd say somebody's unholy, we would say that they're divided, they're broken, they don't work, they're messed up. Everything might go on. So you could say the angels are holy. The angels in heaven are holy. And they are. And the Bible would say about the holy angels in heaven. But their holiness is a holiness that was given to them in their creation. And the holiness you and I have and the holiness you and I will be given is the holiness of another. But when they sing to God in Revelation chapter 4 that you are holy, holy, holy. And in chapter 15, there is none holy but God. There is no contradiction in the Bible about that. Because that word holy, as it refers to God, is a being who is in absolute perfection with himself. Now, I don't understand this about God, but I know he can stir his wrath up. And he can stir his wrath up into full action. And he never ceases to be love. He can bring judgment and he never ceases to be mercy. He does not have to put aside his tenderness to bring a rebuke. Whatever God does, he does it in all of his essence. He does it in all of his being and he does it in all of his perfection. When God loves a sinner, he's being holy and he's being righteous. When God forgives a lost man and causes that person to turn from sin to God, he is being perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfectly good. He never separates himself. Now we, as we know in our life, we holy people, because the Bible calls us a holy people and we're holy brethren, we don't function like that. I mean, when I'm getting mad and losing my temper, I'm not thinking about love. And I'm not thinking about patience. I'm just thinking about I'm losing it. I'm angry. I'm upset. I want to get back. That's what I want. God never, never functions that way. He's holy. He's perfect. He's absolutely complete. He's not broken. He never derived his holiness from anything but himself. He is holy. When the law was given to Moses by God, it simply revealed the absolute perfection of the nature of God. The law reveals a perfect God, a holy God. That's what the law reveals. Well, God never looked at something and said, I think that's the way it ought to work. And so he, he read something somewhere and said, these are good principles that men should live by. No, God said... You cannot lie because in my nature, it is wrong to lie. And whatever's wrong to me is wrong, period, because I am holy and I'm just. It is wrong to murder because in me, it is wrong to murder. I cannot lie. I cannot murder. I cannot tempt you to do something wicked and evil. I cannot deceive you. I cannot mislead you. So Jesus said, even when 
earthly fathers who are evil give good things to their children. He said, our heavenly father cannot give you something evil when you ask him for something. He cannot give you a serpent. He cannot give you anything. He has to give you the Holy Ghost. He can only give you good. He can only do good. He cannot withhold good from you. He cannot withhold it. And so we have to understand this is the holiness of God and the essence of God. How beautiful he must be. How beautiful. We're talking in words. We're trying to understand somebody that, that there is absolutely nothing in creation that can help you understand him. There's nothing that we've ever known that can help us understand this kind of holiness. Nothing we've ever known that can help us understand this kind of perfection, this kind of being who has had no creation, had no beginning, never a baby, never a teenager, never an adolescent, always perfect. He's not old. He'll never get old. He doesn't age. He doesn't dwell in time. Nothing nothing like that. He knows everything. There's no way we can even begin. We speak in words, but one day you're going to see him, and when you do, you'll fall at his feet and worship him. Worship Him for His glory. Nobody's going to be compelled to do that. Nobody's going to be compelled. You're just going to do it before this being. Absolutely majestic, absolutely awesome is God, is the Lord. How beautiful He is, how wonderful He is. He's so worthy to be served. He's so worthy to be lived for. And this last thing, the test of worship, I'm not going to take a long time on it because I've talked about it about three times already But in Revelation 4 and 5, Jesus receives worship. And I want you to see this. In in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 22, and it's in your notes. In Revelation 19.10, John said, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that thou do do that not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God. And then again, in chapter 22, verses 8 through 9, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. That just means messenger. Then said he to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And in your notes, and I've given them to you, God says emphatically in in Exodus 34, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He said in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And we'll refer to this worship often in these lessons because it's if, if you see anybody worshiping Jesus in heaven, then how, how else do you get around the fact that Jesus is God? Now, the, the, the absolute power of Jesus Christ in redemption 
is so far beyond anything you and I have ever imagined or ever tasted. We've got a foretaste of it. We've got a deposit of it. But all that is coming, you struggle, you wrestle, you hate yourself, you hate your sin, you hate your struggles, you hate your battles, you hate the way you fight God, you hate these things that you do, all these things. In Revelation 19, in Re- and I hope you can get this, and in Revelation 22, this is, the, this is back to the Almighty God who lives inside of you. And Paul said, you know what the hope of glory is? Christ in you. Him really inside you is the hope of God. Because you know what he's going to do? He is going to so powerfully and so magnificently change you. And he is going to so glorify your state, your essence, your being, your nature. You are going to be so released and so set free from yourself, your flesh, that wars against the things of the Spirit. You are going to be so completely delivered. So glorified, so brought up into his presence, so much like him, that even in Revelation 19 and chapter 22, John, who saw him, is falling at the feet of some man, thinking that this being is worthy of worship. How glorious must that, and that being says, don't do it, I'm just like you, John, I'm just like you. He never said, I'm better than you. He never said that I'm greater than you. He never said that I'm holier than you. He never said that I'm more glorious than you. I'm just like you. I am your fellow servant. The glory that is in me is the glory that is in you. And it's about to take over your whole life. And you're going to be up here with me worshiping God. But don't worship me. I'm just a man like you. But we're redeemed. And God has set us free. And God has brought us into the image of Jesus Christ. And he has done it. Delivered us from all sin. Delivered us from all iniquity. Delivered us from all transgression. And God gets all the glory. That's why they're all around the throne singing, you're worthy for you were slain and has redeemed us to God. And they worship God. And they worship, they worship God. That's what the command is in heaven. Worship God. Well, I'll tell you this. If this prophet is so noble... And so right and so free from sin and pride and selfishness or everything else. That he would immediately stop John. Say, get up. Don't you dare do this. You do not worship me. I'm your fellow servant. You do not worship me. You worship God. Then I guarantee you the nature of Jesus Christ. If he were not God. In Revelation chapter 5. When those 24 elders fall down before that lamb. They begin to worship Him. They begin to sing to Him. I know in the nature of Jesus, as we do, if He were not God, in the presence of His Father who's sitting on that throne, He would stop them all and say, don't you do this. He's God. He deserves the worship. Not me. Don't you do it. But He never did that. He never did that. Because He is entitled to the right of worship as much as the one on the throne. And then as that worship went on, it wasn't just to the Lamb, it was to both of them. Glory and honor and power unto Him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And it went to both of them. And there's no greed, there's no covetousness, there's no contention, there's no competition. The Father was absolutely glorified 
as those 24 elders fell before that lamb and began to worship him. That was to the glory of his father. When you worship the father, you're glorifying Jesus. You're glorifying Jesus when you worship the father. Knowing the father who sent the son by the Holy Ghost, you worship him. This is all we have time for tonight. I want us to worship him. I want us to come before God and just sing to him, honor him, worship him. Guys, I just want you to know this. He's almighty. He does live in you. He does. Your fear is not almighty. Your depression is not almighty. Your bondage is not almighty. Your sin is not almighty. Your flesh is not almighty. Your stress is not almighty. Jesus is almighty. He's all powerful. He is the Lord. He is the universal sovereign. He is holy. He's holy in his love, holy in his goodness, holy in his mercy. And he is here to do good to those that fall before him and worship him and thank him. Oh, thank him. How great is our God. Sing that call, if you would, the splendor of the king. Oh, God, let him be worshipped tonight. How wonderful he is to all of us. How wonderful he is. He heals. He delivers. He makes a way. This great God has given his attention to you. His attention to you tonight. Everything upon you. How wonderful. How wonderful is our God. Jesus, thank you.